You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on Trinity Sunday, June 16th, 2019. A reading from the prophet Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have some important piece of business. Something only President Trump himself can address for you. And so you make your journey to Washington, D.C., and you go to the gates of the White House and you knock on the door, being careful not to jump over the fence so the, you know, the security doesn't come out and get you. And you, somebody comes to the gate and you you say, I'd like to, to see President Trump, please. What are the chances that you are going to see President Trump? They're pretty slim. Why? Because President Trump is a busy man. He can't just take everybody who walks up to the White House gates and have an appointment with them and sit down for coffee. It just doesn't work that way. And as it is today, so also it was back in Abraham Lincoln's time. Except there was a lot less security and you could walk right in the front door of the White House. And so in the first year of the Civil War, there was a group of gentlemen from Kentucky and they had some important business that could only be addressed by the president himself. And so they came, and President Lincoln knew exactly what it was that they were trying to accomplish, and he, for that reason, was trying to avoid an appointment with them. And so they were waiting in the foyer of the White House, and they came back day after day, and after they had been there for more than a week, President Lincoln's son, Tad, uh, happened to see them in the foyer. And he noticed them because he had seen them every day in the foyer. And as they were talking back and forth, you could see that they were visibly frustrated and they talked about how disappointed it was to get an appointment to see old Abe. And hearing this, Tad went up to them and said, would you like to see old Abe right now? And they said, well, yes, of course. And so he went down the hall and he knocked on his father's office and he went in and he said, Papa, I'd like to introduce you to some friends. And he says, all right, Tad. So Tad goes out and he brings in these gentlemen from Kentucky and he introduces them to him very politely. 
And instead of getting frustrated, instead of getting angry, this is what Mr. Lincoln does. He reaches for the boy, takes him into his lap, kisses him, and he told him it was all right that he had introduced his friend like a gentleman as the gentleman that he was. Now I tell this story both because it's a great Father's Day tale, uh, but also because it gives us an image of the president as both someone who is distant, but also yet someone who is accessible, to the right people anyway, certainly to one's own son. As we think about the Trinity this morning, we will contemplate the amazing mystery of this core Christian doctrine, and we will remember how God is both distant, but also very close at the same time. The doctrine of the Trinity describes the very nature of God. And this is quite an amazing revelation, one that didn't come to us right from the beginning, but took Jesus Christ to begin to give us a glimpse of the very nature of God. In the beginning, we are clear that God is one. In the Shema, the ancient uh, text from Deuteronomy 6, the Israelites are to recite, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus. And then we see Jesus promising to send the Holy Spirit. And just last Sunday, we read about the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the hearts of the apostles and all those who follow Jesus after that. And so what do we make of this? One God, but now we see a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Is this now three gods? Or is it one God? Is Jesus God? Is the Holy Spirit God? Of course, the answer to all these questions is yes. But how can that be? It makes people scratch their heads. And I think one thing we can draw from this is the fact that God, while we are made in his image, is not like us. God is higher than us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And his very being, his very personhood, is bigger than what we can express as mere humans. Because I don't know about you, but I'm one Chris with only one Chris. <laughs> Many early church Christian heresies got in trouble for emphasizing either God's oneness over his diversity of persons, or his diversity of persons over his oneness. And this is, in fact, why the creeds were written, in addition to wrestling with how Jesus could be both God and man at the same time. These are all questions that make us scratch our heads, and these were really the main reasons why church heresies were springing up in the first place and the reasons why these creeds had to be created. It was to define clearly what we believe, even as we can't fully comprehend what we're describing. One creed that you may have heard of, but maybe you haven't heard of, is the Athanasian Creed. It's actually the third creed that we have in our Anglican tradition, uh, and other traditions hold this one as well, but it's the one that we don't think about as much. Maybe it's because 
it's not assigned to either Eucharist or morning and evening prayer as something that we recite on a regular basis. We find it in the very back of the prayer book, but it is in the prayer book, and, and you'll see it on the last pages of the new prayer book when they show up. But I've, I've asked uh, to have it printed in your bulletins today, so you have a separate little handout that has it. I think another reason it's not used in worship very often is it's much longer than the other creeds. Um, but it is the clearest among the creeds on the doctrine of the Trinity, of who God is and how he is one God in three persons. So I'm just going to highlight a few brief passages for you. Uh, first of all, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And then towards the bottom of the first page, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. And then in the next page, the bottom of that first paragraph, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, so that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshiped. So above all things, this doctrine of the Trinity is to draw us into the worship of this God who is so far above us, so incomprehensible in many ways, and yet he deigns to reveal himself to us. That is what we mean by the doctrine of the Trinity. And we can get bogged down in the details of it. We can get bogged down in insufficient metaphors like eggs or steam and ice and water, but all of those don't work. They all break down at some point or another, and they all kind of skirt the edges of those early Christian heresies that we're trying to avoid. So it's really best just to stand back in awe at the majesty of this God who is one God and yet three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this gives us an image of a transcendent God, a God who is far above us, whose ways are not our ways, and who is so much higher than us and above us. And our readings today from both Isaiah and Revelation play on this same picture of a transcendent God who is distant and high and mighty and glorious. Just listen to the beginning of this passage from Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. How is he described? He is high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. That's a pretty long train. That's not the, the kind of train that you go walking around town with. That's the, the kind of train that you, you have when you're sitting on your throne and when you are in charge. And that's exactly who God is. He is in charge. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then it says, the very foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the whole house was filled with smoke. Now picture yourself in there, in that temple, 
beholding that presence of this one whose glory fills the whole earth, how would you feel? It's an awesome picture. It's an enormous picture. How does Isaiah respond? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I myself have unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's afraid. Why? Because he doesn't fit in that picture. He knows that God is holy, and he knows that he is not. And he knows the history of what happens when unholy people come into the presence of the holy God. We can look at lots of pictures of people who were swallowed up by the earth, people who were burned up in fire, people who were defeated in battle. It doesn't usually go well for people when they come face to face with the living God. And we see the same thing in the book of Revelation. We see these same six-winged creatures. We see the same cry of holy, holy, holy. We see the same transcendent God seated, seated upon his throne, now surrounded by 24 elders with their own thrones, but each of them casting down their crowns before him because of his majesty, because of his glory, because of his sovereignty. This is a picture of God. It's the same kind of picture we get when we step into an ancient Gothic cathedral or when we stand on the edge of the ocean and look out and understand how big it is and how big must be the one who created it. Or the picture we get standing at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and looking up at those giant rock walls and wondering of the majesty of the one who built them. But even in the midst of these strong themes of God's otherness, of the ways that he is set apart, the ways that he is glorious and high above us, his transcendence. We also see glimpses of intimacy in both of these passages, Isaiah and Revelation. When Isaiah cries out to the Lord, woe is me, for I have unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, the Lord responds by sending his seraphim. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And so Isaiah is able to be in the presence of this transcendent other God because his sin is atoned for. It's burned away and cleansed. Or in Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Revelation, John, at the very beginning of this vision, has this picture of a door standing open, going up into heaven. And the voice he hears says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. He has a personal invitation from the living God to come and enter into his presence to see his glorious throne, to see the worship of the seraphim and these 24 elders. And in the gospel today, we're reminded 
of the familial image that God uses when he reveals himself to us. With words like father and son. When we think of father and son, we think not of distance, generally, but of closeness. We think of people that are closer to one another than almost any other people are. Parents and children. And Jesus says in John 16, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Here we see the incredible unity of these three persons. All three persons are present and mentioned here. And yet we see the interoperability of them. We see that all that the one has belongs to the other. And all that the other has will be given to us through the Holy Spirit. That's a very accessible image. It seems almost incompatible with the transcendence that we were talking about before. And the Holy Spirit will declare all that belongs to Jesus to us and reveal it to us. That's amazing. Praise God. This tension between God's closeness and his otherness, his transcendence and his imminence, is part of what led to the doctrine of the Trinity in the early church. One theologian says that the scriptures point to a pattern of divine activity and presence in and through creation in which God is both imminent, that means close, and transcendent, which means high and lofty. A purely Unitarian conception of God proved inadequate to contain this dynamic understanding of God. So how is this possible? Well, Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes this possible. Jesus is the person of the Trinity who reveals the Father to us and sends the Holy Spirit to us. It says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Verse 15, I'm sorry. The image of the invisible God. He takes the invisible, transcendent God and makes him close, visible, present even touchable. Jesus reconciles us to the Father and then sends the Holy Spirit to actually dwell within us. How much closer can you get than that? To have God actually living within you. For you to be his temple. The last time we heard about a temple was in Isaiah, where Isaiah enters this transcendent temple to encounter the transcendent God And now we ourselves are that temple, and the living God dwells within us. And yet, God is still to be feared and respected. He is not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis reminds us in the Chronicles of Narnia. Jesus makes the transcendent Godhead knowable. Jesus the Son leads us into his Father's throne room, and presents us to him. 
just as young Tad did to his father Abraham. He brings us into the presence of God. And there God welcomes us. We are reconciled to him. And we are adopted as his sons and daughters, becoming actually children of God. God our Father. And we his sons and daughters. All this is possible through the cross. Jesus took our place. Jesus took all of our sinfulness upon himself. Jesus took all of the accusations which rightly could be launched against us, and he allowed them to be aimed at him. And then by his blood, we are redeemed. Our sins are washed away. And we're able once more to be in the presence of this awesome, transcendent, holy, and now yet very near God. J.I. Packer, who is a, a prominent Anglican evangelical theologian, wrote a classic book called Knowing God. And in this book he says, Perhaps you have been acquainted with the Bible and Christian truth for many years, and it has meant little to you. But one day you wake up to the fact that God is actually speaking to you. To you. Through the biblical message. And as you listen to what God is saying, you find yourself brought very low. For God talks to you about your sin and guilt and weakness and blindness and folly. And compels you to judge yourself hopeless and helpless. And to cry out for forgiveness. But this is not all. You come to realize as you listen that God is actually opening his heart to you, making friends with you, and enlisting you as his colleague, a covenant partner. It is a staggering thing, but it is true. The relationship in which sinful human beings know God is one in which God, so to speak, takes them onto his staff to be henceforth his fellow workers and his personal friends. This is the kind of people we get to be in the presence of God because of Jesus. Because Jesus has made himself known to us and therefore reveals the entirety of the Trinity to us. We become adopted as God's sons and daughters, welcomed into his throne room, sat upon his knee, told we are loved and accepted and cherished. If you don't know God in this way, you absolutely can know God in this way. It's as simple as a prayer. Asking God to become Lord of your life. Asking Jesus to forgive your sins. Asking to be welcomed into the presence of God. And if you do know God in this way, then let us praise him together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God who is both transcendent, high and lofty, and yet very close and personal all at the same time. This is the God we worship. This is the God we adore. And this is the God who loves us, even me, and even you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are not like us, and that you are high above us, but that you also stoop to be near us because you love us. 
We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for the way that you've reconciled us to yourself through him. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We thank you that you love us as a father loves his children. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you more. Wherever we are in our journey with you, we pray that you would help us to know you more, that you'd show us more of yourself, that you'd reveal more of yourself to us. And we adore you and we worship you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.